0: Well, good morning, I'm Stephen, the pastor, and I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Haggai, and uh, if you don't know what Haggai is or where it is, um, good luck trying to find it. (laughs) Table of contents, it's three books before the end of the Old Testament, and so um, I'm going to give you a couple minutes of introduction while you can look for that, but uh, make sure you can listen while you're looking um, I want to start off today with a question for you that I think all of us can identify with, and that is, why is it that for so many people, life feels like it just doesn't work out? Like, why is that? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Like, why is it that life doesn't work out? In the midst of complaints, in the midst of frustration, it feels like, man, like, I just can't seem to get over I'm always feeling like I'm on the edge of actually achieving the life that I want. Um, People have so many expectations and dreams and goals. Like some people have explicit goals. We sort of talked about that a little bit last week. Some people write out their goals every year. It's a great thing to do. Sometimes, though, people just have this general idea that, you know what, I just want to be happy. I want to have good friends. Um, I want to have enough money so that I can enjoy life. You know, and it's just more of a general sense of, man, life should be like that. <clears throat> but for so many people, they don't have that life. Life isn't working out, and we don't know why. In fact, this is one reason why a lot of people will come to church. A lot of people who aren't Christians will come to church, or they'll come back to church for a long, uh, after being away for a long time, because they're hoping maybe they can find out why life isn't working. You're hoping that maybe God might have sort of an opportunity to to, to get a new beginning. And that might be you today. Like you might be here trying for a new beginning. Um, There's also people who call themselves Christians who are in the same boat. A lot of people who say they're Christians, they, they become Christians, and they feel like their life hasn't really changed much. You know, they don't sense that they feel closer to God. They still have problems at work, problems with money, problems with marriage, family, relationships. And so in some ways, we're all in the same boat. And the good news for us is that the Bible speaks directly to this. And the Bible addresses this specifically. In this obscure book of Haggai, um, this short book at the end of the Old Testament, if you can get all the way, if you're reading the Old Testament, you get this far. Sometimes you just sort of like pewter out because you're just tired. And you're like, oh, man. And so even if you do read it, sometimes you just sort of I don't know if you ever read this way, but you sort of, your eyes run across the page and you get up after five or 10 minutes or maybe 20 and you think, I have no idea what I just read. I have no idea what that book was talking about, but I finished it. Yay, I'm going to finish the Bible, right? This happens to me sometimes. Well, in this two-chapter book, something crazy happens because this book was written in 520 BC. So that's 2,500 years ago. And yet, it speaks to us today. It has the power to speak and to change our lives today and to give us what we're calling a new beginning. Haggai was written so that the people that he wrote to and us could have a new beginning. Last week, we started this series, and we saw that a new beginning starts with listening to God in the Bible. And and I want to ask, how'd you do? How'd you do this last week? Were you able to spend time with God were you able to talk to anybody else? Did you share with anybody else, hey, this is what I read this week in the Bible? That's where it starts, remember. It starts with being in a place where you are hearing God speak. Um, but this new beginning that Haggai offers to us, it explains why life doesn't work out and what we can do about it. That's what we're going to see today. And so um, I want to explain, before we look at the verses today, I want to just put Haggai in its place in history. Okay, just to explain where this fits in, when it was written, kind of stuff like that, so that you can understand it, so that when you read it, you're like, oh, okay, I guess I get a little bit better sense of what's going on. Um, it starts, this is the first verse. It's not in your bulletin. This is from last week. It says, in the second year of Darius the king. That's when Haggai starts, okay? And, uh, and I want to just back up a little bit and show you that um, this book starts 18 years into a story, Okay, so 18 years before the second year of Darius the king, or Darius. So in 538 BC, something happened. This is 18 years before Haggai was written. In 538 BC, Israel returned to their land after 70 years of living in slavery for their sins. Okay, so... 18 years before Haggai, in 538 B.C., Israel goes back. They've been enslaved. They've been in captivity. Bible people call it the the exile. They were in exile for 70 years, away from home, without um, all of the blessings that come from having a home. And in 538 B.C., um, I'm going to read this because Chad wrote this as an introduction as he and I were talking about this. This is what he says. So this is Chad Gray, our own Chad Gray. In 538 B.C., after 70 years of exile, against all odds, God shook the nations and moved King Cyrus, who's a different king from Darius, to let the exiles of Israel return to Jerusalem. And the Israelites had been longing for this. They had these amazing promises that this would happen someday, and it would mean that they are once again in God's plan to renew the world. And so Israel went back singing. This was like amazing news, right? The king out of nowhere all of a sudden says, okay, you can go back. And they go, oh my goodness, wait, 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 wait. how long has it been? It's been like 70. God is fulfilling his promise. This is our salvation. This is us returning to the blessing and to God. And so they went back, they marched back to Jerusalem from at that time now it's Persia, because Persia had conquered Babylon. They marched back to Jerusalem with songs on their hearts, with songs in their mouths, with celebration, longing for the day they could set foot again on the promised land, when they could come back and to be with God. And so they enter back into the land, and what happens next? What happens next is 18 years of frustration and disappointment. You might have heard of the Old Testament book of Ezra. Okay, if you haven't, it's in there. It comes before Haggai, way before Haggai. Um, Ezra chapters 1 through 5 record what happened when Israel got back to the land and what happened during those 18 years. And life is not as good as they expected. Um, Their work was frustrating, their economy was stagnant, they were terrorized by neighboring countries and they were hassled by political leaders who had been bought through lobbying. Nothing has changed, (laughs) right? 2,500 years later, economy is stagnant, terrorized by neighboring countries, and they were hassled by political leaders who had been bought through lobbying. Man, there's nothing new under the sun, folks. When we can realize that the Bible is talking about real people in real space, in real time, we can connect to it. And this is sort of the joy of studying the Bible. Well, so then for 18 years, people lived in frustration and disappointment. Um, I don't know for you if it's been 18 years, but I think a lot of us can identify with this, right? With frustration and disappointment. For some of you, it's been a lot shorter than 18 years. And then for others of you, it's actually been a lot longer than 18 years, hasn't it? Well then, in 520 BC, 18 years later, God speaks through Haggai the prophet. God comes. The people wanted to know why life was frustrating and disappointing, and God tells them exactly why. God explains why their life is frustrating and disappointing. and He does that in verses two through four of chapter one. And what Haggai told them, Then, Jesus says to us today, okay, so these these verses are in your bulletin. Um, They're also going to be up here on the screen. Listen, this is God's word. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins. God speaks into our frustration and our disappointment with both a statement and a question. He diagnoses the problem and then he shows why that problem exists. And verse 2 shows us the problem. Look at it again. It just says there These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. I think even just with a cursory reading, you can kind of get a sense of what's going on here, but it's going to help us a lot to dig deeper into these verses and just answer a couple of questions that you might have as you read this verse. Um, the better we understand what the Bible says, the more powerfully it speaks into our lives today, okay? And so what we're going to do is really similar to what you can do on your own when you have a, if you have a study Bible or if you do some research on the internet, you can ask some questions And so what I want to do is I want to answer first, what is the house of the Lord? Okay, God says, the people say the time hasn't come yet to rebuild the house of the Lord. What is that? Simply put, the short answer is that it's the temple. Okay, it's the temple. And if you've been around, I mean, even today the Jews don't have a temple, but there was a temple where the Dome of the Rock is now in the Holy Land. Um, But I want to show you, this is a picture of what the temple looked like back during the days of Solomon. So about 500 years before this book of Haggai was written, Solomon had this temple built. This was the first temple built in Israel, and it had the best stone. It was full of gold and silver and bronze. Most people would say that it was heaven on earth, and that was the intention The intention was that if you saw it, you would think, wow, this is heaven on earth. This had the best that the world had to offer, not just in precious metals, okay? It wasn't just that it was made of highly precious gold, silver, and bronze, but it was also full of artistry. So it was full of carvings and sewings. It was full of statues, beautiful imagery and metaphors. And so if you saw it, you would be tempted to think that you had died and gone to heaven. And the temple was called the house of the Lord because God's presence was there. God's presence was in the temple, in the midst of all of the gold and the best of the best. That's where God's presence dwelled. And there were two purposes to the house of the Lord, okay? There were two purposes to the temple, First, the first purpose of the temple was that the people wanted to honor God with the best we have. Okay, that's why it was so grandiose, so opulent, so, I mean, filled with so much luxury. The people gave out of their own, like, stuff. They gave their stuff to make God's house this beautiful, this grand, because they wanted to honor God. They wanted to put God first. They wanted God to live in a house that they would be proud of offering to him. Now you think about, if you've ever had your boss come over to your house for dinner. And you think about some of the preparation that goes on there, just to make the house look presentable. And there might be things that you normally don't put out, but you put out because of the importance of your guest. Right? You think about if the President of the United States, if President Obama were to come to your home, what would you do to get ready for him? The same thing. They wanted to honor God by building a temple, by building him a house that had the best that they had, that was full of the best that they could offer. And so they gave God their best because they respected him so much. They wanted to show him just how important he was to them. And so the grandeur of the temple showed that they were honoring God with the best they had. And that was part of the purpose. God, we want our house to show you just how much we love you. But then second, there was another purpose that was just as vital, just as important. The purpose of the temple was to commune with the God who saved them. So the purpose of the temple, it was designed to bring people as close to God as they could get. That was the design. God designed the temple, had it built so that people would know him and would live in a relationship with him. Okay, so it was designed. The temple was designed for communion. You'd go to the temple because you wanted to be with God. And so look at the temple again. I want you to see this, that um, there are elements in it. This temple shows, because of its Like lavishness, because of its luxury, it shows how important God is. It shows God's glory. It shows His, um, again, just His importance, and it showed that God was holy. Right? It showed that God was holy. He was separate from us, but He calls us to come near to Him. So God is sort of walled off in this room, in this temple, and yet He invites people to come. The temple showed that God is both holy and infinitely perfect because everything was flawless, everything was spotless, everything was, was, was perfect in every way, and yet it shows that God is full of love and forgiveness. You can see the altar, right? This is an altar outside the temple, and that altar was designed, on that altar, animals were offered to atone for our sins. So the idea is that we sin, but God provided a system of sacrifices, a system of substitutionary sacrifices so that an animal could be offered and pay the price that our sins deserve so that we could be forgiven. And so when you walked in, in some ways, the first thing you'd see was the altar and you would remember that, boy, my sin matters. My sin has a price, but God has offered a substitute so that I don't have to pay that price and I can be forgiven. So if you look to the right, you'd see that. If you look to the left, you see that giant basin of water? It's a huge basin of water. And the metaphor, metaphorically, this was water from heaven. It was raised up off the ground. And so it was a picture of like a cloud. And it was, a, it was water from heaven that was poured out to cleanse us and fill us with God's presence. This is the purpose of the temple. And so the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord was an expression of honor to God and communion with him. So Is honoring God and communing with him. And what we're seeing here in Haggai chapter one, verse two, we're seeing that after 18 years of being back in the land, the house wasn't built. After 18 years of being back in the land, this house wasn't built. And verse two tells us, the people said, you know what? The time has not yet come to rebuild the house Of the Lord. Understanding the purpose of the temple helps us understand what they were saying with these words. The people were saying, The time has not yet come for us to honor the Lord. Even worse, they were saying, The time has not yet come for us to commune with the God who saved us. And so this God has miraculously, with incredible power, brought us back into the land that we love, into the holy land, into the promised land. And yet, you know what? It's not time yet for us to walk with him. It's not time yet for us to have any kind of a relationship with him. God is speaking to the people back then through Haggai and he's speaking to us today. He's saying, do you know why life isn't working out? It's because you're not honoring me and you're not communing with me. We all need to ask ourselves, like, is this us? Are we in this place? Um, do you have no time for God? And I think it's, it's not so overt in our lives, right? I mean, all of us um, Christians would say, well, of course I love God. Of course I, I, I want to honor God. Of course, of course, of course. But yeah, look what verse two says. Verse two says, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The time has not yet come. And so these are people, like the people are saying, well, yeah, of course God is important. We just can't get to that yet. I think that the problem is, I mean, again, this is verse two, right? The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Here's the problem. Yet never comes. You need to understand this. Yet never, ever comes. When you say, it's not yet time for me to spend time with God. It's not yet time. I don't yet have enough time to be able to do this for God. I don't yet have time to honor God. I don't yet have time to commune with him. Yet never comes. Part of the magic, I don't know the magic, part of the power of the book of Haggai is that it's been 18 years And when we see that, we go, oh, man, like, I've seen that in my own life. Yeah, I'll get to that at some point. I'll start reading the Bible at some point. Or, you know, I know I need to be in a life group. I know I need to be in communication and community with other people that are trying to follow Jesus. I know how important that is for me to grow. I need to be with people that that I'm praying with. I need to be people who know me. I need to be with people that I know so there can be interaction because God comes alive in community. I know I need to do that at some point. I just can't do it now. I don't have time for that yet. And I just want to say that yet never comes. You will be saying the time has not yet come for the rest of your life. How do I know this? Well, how many times have you made a promise to yourself that you're going to start reading the Bible? Right? How many times have you made promises about you know, coming back to church? And you come for a little while, and then it just falls off. Right? The yet never comes. Thinking about, too, the 18 years in Israel, the people of Israel actually started to rebuild the temple when they first got back to the land 18 years ago. But it was difficult. They were discouraged. They were hassled by enemies and politics, like I said. And so they stopped, and they just never got back to it. And so almost two decades of nothing. And so into that, God comes and speaks. Right? Into our not yet today, Jesus is coming and speaking. And he's saying, look, here's the problem. Do you want to know why life isn't working out? It's because you're neglecting me. You're neglecting your relationship with me. Now, you might be thinking something, because I was kind of thinking this at the time when I was looking at this verse. I was like, well, hold on, wait a minute. This isn't fair, because what if they didn't have all the extravagance to be able to build the temple, right? I mean, they just got back from slavery. They didn't have the resources to build the temple again, right? The economy was stagnant. They were being hassled, right? So what gives? Like how, that feels like a pressure and a call to do something that they don't have the ability to do. And so maybe they're saying it's not yet time because we don't have the money to do it. Well, let's look again at verses 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, and he said this, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Paneled houses. These are houses of luxury. Okay, the panels are luxurious. Um, the word paneled shows up in different aspects. Actually, it's interesting that the, the word paneled shows up to describe the temple itself in its luxury, um, that it was built with cedars of Lebanon, which were the, the greatest trees um, in the Old Testament time. And God is saying, wait a second, wait a second, you're building luxury into your own homes. This is like building front and back decks on your house Maybe while God's house lies in ruins. And so what's happening here, God is saying your extravagance comes before God's sustenance. That's the message of these three verses, that you are putting your extravagance ahead of God's sustenance. And this is absolutely backwards. This is absolutely backwards. And you wonder why your life isn't working out. This idea, this sort of lifestyle of pursuing your own luxury, um, and luxury doesn't have to be a mansion. Right? It doesn't have to be a brand new car. I mean, But the question is, are you, are you giving to God what God asks for? Um, we're going to dive more into this um, in the weeks to come. Um, but before we get into the specifics, I mean, um, what this says, this says, God, you're not important to me. If you are pursuing your own luxury before God's sustenance, you're saying, God, you're just not that important to me. And you can say, no, 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 hold on. God doesn't really care about money or God doesn't this or that. But the reality is that if God asks you for something and you're not willing to give it, but you're willing to spend what you have on your own luxury, then what you're saying is that God is not important enough to be a priority in your life. This says something else that that I think is just as poignant, and it's this, God, my extravagance will make me happy in ways that you can't. Because isn't this what we're saying? And this is specifically, I mean, Haggai's talking to the people of Israel, okay? We're going to apply this to ourselves here in just a minute, but... Um, But that's, I mean, you can see that, that what they're doing, okay, and it takes wisdom for us to figure out, okay, what is luxury in my life? What is sustenance in my life? What is sustenance for God? And that kind of stuff. But just speaking about them, for them to pursue their own paneled houses, right, for them to build luxury into their own homes while they're neglecting God's house, what they're saying is, Like whatever they might say that they think or say that they believe, what their actions are revealing is that they believe that pursuing luxury in their own lives is going to make them happy in ways that God just can't. I don't think they or we ever set out to neglect our relationship with God. But sometimes we need passages like this that help us ask the question... Are we doing this? There's a, um, like on the second point, uh, my extravagance will make me happy in ways that you can't. Um, Extravagance could be a lot of different things, right? It could be the stuff that we buy. Um, It could be that, you know what, God, my new car will make me happy in ways that you can't. Um, it can also be uh, the, the pursuit of a career ahead of God, right? God, my career, look, I'm going to have to put you on the back burner. I don't have time for you. I need to say yes to this career path, which means I'm not going to be able to go to church or be in a life group or even spend time with you um, because it's not yet time. I need to pursue this. Then what you're functionally saying is, God, this pursuit is going to make me happy in a way that you cannot. Um, there's a book that uh, we're going to offer to y'all in the, in the back in the cafe. It's by Tim Keller, and it's called Counterfeit Gods. And uh, the subtitle of this book fills my heart with um, conviction and hope and power at the same time. The, uh, the, the subtitle is The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power and the Only Hope that Matters. This book... I highly recommend it to you because what what Tim does in this book is he exposes the empty promises of extravagance because we think our extravagance is going to make us happy in ways that God can't. We think a career will make us happy and fulfilled. We think think a relationship, just being loved by someone, will make us happy in ways that God can't. We think that if we don't have, um, if we're not married, right, we think if we don't have children, we think if... We don't, I mean, fill in the blank, right? We think if we don't have these things, we won't really be happy. And this book, along with the scriptures and the gospel itself, says, "Man, these are empty promises. It's a fantasy that you're being sold. The reason you're chasing after that to be happy is because you've you've bought into the lie. These things cannot make you happy. You wonder why your life isn't working out. It's because you and I, we are tempted to pursue after extravagance and luxury and stuff and relationships and career and you name it, while our relationship with God lies in ruins. The New Testament says that God doesn't actually need a temple anymore. Well, actually, that's not what it says. Actually, the Bible says that now in the New Testament, with Jesus coming... Now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the house of God. And so we individually have the presence of God dwelling in us if we're Christians, right? That's one of the benefits. When you believe in Jesus, God puts his presence in you. He draws so close to you, closer than any temple-goer ever could have been to God, that God dwells in our hearts. God lives in us. He dwells in us. This is part of the good news of the gospel, right? and he can meet our deepest needs. And so for us today, what this looks like is us pursuing a relationship with God. We are the house of God. We're the temple. He dwells in us. And it's now the spiritual component of our lives that if we neglect, life will not work out. And so for us, uh, when our relationship with God is being neglected, when we don't honor God, Life doesn't work out. When we aren't communing with God, life doesn't work out. And so for us, what do we do? Like what do we do now about this? What can you do this week to experience more of a new beginning? Well, two things. You do two things and you've already written them down. Okay? But you can write them again. One, commune with God. And two, honor him in every area of your life. Commune with God and then honor him in every area of your life. And so what does that mean, like fleshed out? Well, communing with God means spending time with God. And so you can do that in lots of different ways. You can do that in a lot of different ways. Um, One of the best ways is to read the Bible. And we have city Bible reading that can help you that can show you how to read and how to meet God when you read. Um, we had a great conversation in our life group this last week. We break out into men and women for a portion of our time together. And as guys, we were talking, and we were talking about, are we listening to God? Are we hearing the Bible? And, man, our group was full of guilt. Our group was full of guilt. Um, you know, one guy said, man, I just, I, 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 I want to want to read the Bible. And the reality is I just don't. Um, Another person said, you know what? I don't really spend time personally reading the Bible, but I read it with my wife and we are very consistent, but I feel guilty like maybe I should read it on my own, not just with my wife. Um, And somebody else in our group said, man, there's so much to read. I do CBR and by the time I'm done with reading the Old Testament reading and the New Testament reading, I feel like, man, I've got to go. I don't have time. Right, um, And we were talking about this. And it was interesting because as, as we were talking about it, we realized that in some ways we had missed the why behind the what. You know, even with Bible reading, there's a purpose to it. Right? What is that purpose? Well, that purpose is to commune with God. And so that does a couple things. One, that frees us up so that, you know what, there are a lot of ways that you can meet with God and spend time with him. You can do that by singing songs that are about him. You can do that by listening to sermons or lectures or even listening to the Bible. You can do it by reading the Bible. Um, You can do it by spending time talking with other people about the Bible, right? There are lots of different ways that you can remember who God is and then respond to him in prayer. And every time you do that, you're communing with God. And so getting sort of down to that why sense, it helped us to be able to go, wait a minute, hold on. There are different ways that we can do this. And so if you feel sort of strapped or if you feel sort of tied in or if you have this sort of negative feeling about reading the Bible, then you know what? Do something else. Do something else that reminds you of who God is and helps you get to a place where you can respond and tell God how much you love him, how thankful you are for him. Um, You can confess your sins and ask him to help you grow. Right. If you do that every time you do that, no matter what the input is, you're communing with God, and that's a good thing. Like that's you're doing it. Um, the other thing that was uh, you know that, that this ties in with is this idea of honoring God in all of life, because um, we asked the question in our discussion for um, one of the guys just has trouble making time. He's like, you know what, I just, I feel like I don't have time. And I'm like, well, so what is it that you do instead of reading the Bible? And he said, well, I get on email. um, I will try to get, so, and I was like, oh, what kind of emails? He's like, well, you know, I'm trying to get work emails out, because early in the morning, like, it's helpful just to get it out, because then it's done, and then I can go into my work and focus on my work and not have to deal with emails. Um, And then, uh, and it was like, all right, well, what else? And then it was, well, I want to get home as soon as I can, like I have a gap between the time I leave for work and the time I get home, but I want to get home so that I can relieve my wife because she's been at home with, my, with, our, you know, with our child all day and I want to get there to help spell her. Um, and, then, um, and then it was like, and then late at night, I'm kind of a neat freak and so I feel like I need to help clean the place. I need to clean our place because I don't want to leave it entirely to my wife to have to clean the place because I'm really more of a stickler and she's not and so it seems kind of wrong to make her do it all. And so I spend time at night trying to clean the place. And I'm listening going, wow, there's a lot of things that you just said, none of which I expected you to say. What I expected you to say was, I get out on the internet and check Facebook. I go on ESPN, that's what I would say. I go on ESPN.com and spend a lot of time there. Um, I want to, you know, like... I want to get on Netflix when I get home. I want to watch TV. I want to relax. And you didn't say any of that. In fact, the things that you said are actually things that are honoring to God. Like you're doing exactly what God wants you to do in some ways. Like God wants you to do your work with excellence. And so the idea that you are trying in the morning to get emails out and communication so you can be excellent in your workplace is honoring to God. The fact that you want to get home, and at the end of the day, you want to spell your wife so that she doesn't have the full labor of taking care of all things. Like, that's a clear application of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Right? You're giving yourself in service to your wife. And I said, what if, what if you took those things that you do and actually turned them into moments of communion? Communion. What if when you got on your computer to send out those emails because you really needed to get them out, what if you were to say, God, I want to be excellent in my workplace. And so I want to honor you by communicating clearly, quickly, timely manner. And then now, when you're doing these emails, you're doing them with God. What if in your hurry to get home, you were just to say to God, God, I love my wife and my family and I want to honor you by showing Jesus to them and sacrificing my own comfort, my own time um, by giving myself uh, for my wife and my family. That turns that into communion. What if you saw yourself washing dishes and while you're washing dishes said, God, this is what you do. You take things that are dirty, um, you take things that are soiled, and you clean them up and prepare them for new use. You can turn all of these things that are in the way of your relationship with God, right? They're in the way of you communing with God. You can actually make them moments of communion with God. You can turn those things into acts of worship. And that's how you honor him in all of life. So I want to offer these two things to you. The way to put God first, the way to not neglect God and not to neglect your relationship with him is to commune with him, like pursue time with him. Pursue a moment where you're talking to God and you're telling him how much you love him, where you're telling God how much you appreciate him, where you're showing God that you know that you're sinful and you need forgiveness and ask him to help you grow and to help you live today to honor him. And then just include him in your day. It's funny, actually, the the clock that we have, right? The clock was invented by monks. um, And monks invented the clock so that they could, every hour on the hour, stop in whatever place they were doing and just pray. Not for a huge, long, extended periods of time, but just in the moment, oh, God, okay, I'm writing an email right now. You know what? I love you and I hope this email reflects you and reflects the grace and the truth of Jesus. Right? The alarm goes off. You're having a meeting with somebody, and just silently in your mind, you think, Lord, help me love this person. Right? You're at home, maybe vegging out. Maybe after a hard day's work, you deserve a rest. And you can say, God, you know what? In this moment, thank you that I can rest. Thank you for being a God of Sabbath rest. Right? These are ways that you can honor God. And when you do that, honor becomes communion. Your life becomes lived for Him. And God's house, your expression of God's house, doesn't lie in ruins. And so chase after this this week communion and honor. And again, don't do it alone. Talk to someone else in your life group, talk to someone else as a friend, someone else in the church, and just keep them posted. Hey, here's how I'm doing, communing with God. Here's how I'm doing, honoring him. And see if, see if the honor doesn't become communion. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for being present with us always. We thank you for the promise that you will be with us. And Jesus, I know there are some here who want life to work out and they know they don't have a relationship with you. I pray that you would invite them you would remind them that they can, they can come to you, that you call and you offer forgiveness if they would confess their sins, move them to confess their sins to you. They might receive your forgiveness and begin to commune and honor you in their lives. And for the rest of us, Lord, let this week, let this week be filled with opportunities for us to commune with you and then to honor you in our homes in our workplaces, and in our neighborhoods. Let it be that we would find what Jacob found in Genesis when he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. Help us to find you, help us to see you all over our lives this week. And we pray, we pray this in your name, amen.